Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? It's Tuesday again, and that means it's time for another episode of the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesome awesomeness of some very very cool plant people. I'm Vikram Blee, you're your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, I am thrilled to be with you today. You like history? You like plants? You like talking about plants in history? Well, if you answered yes to any of those questions, uh, you're going to love today's episode. If you answered no to any of those questions, just hold on. I bet we can change your mind. So my guest today is uh a Twitter friend that I've had for a while named Natalie Sabin. And Natalie is an ecologist, a computer scientist, and, and has done all kinds of stuff. But she's also the host of the Across the Ages podcast, a really, really great show that you need to be listening to where she dives into different topics across the ages and talks about everything from like shoes to weaponry to alcohol. And it's it's really fascinating and a lot of fun. And her personality is just, just fantastic. And so I thought, oh, hey, you are a self-proclaimed plant person, Natalie. Would you like to come talk to me about the history of gardens? And she graciously agreed. And so um, we chatted for a very long time. I think uh, she's in the UK. No, I, I mean, I know she's in the UK, but I think I got up about 5.30 and we started recording about 6 a.m., um, Texas time, my time, and uh, maybe, maybe that's noon in the UK. I don't understand time zones, but um, so this is kind of a long episode because uh, I was so into it, I didn't even like pay attention to the the clock. And I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. Listen to it in two chunks if you have to. But this thing is great from start to finish, and you're gonna love it. Again, if you're not a history buff, if you're not a history nerd, or more specifically, a plant history nerd, I bet we can change your mind. It's really fascinating. So, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it, except that, uh, Natalie's brilliant. She is a absolute delight to talk to, and I know that you're going to love her as much as I do. So, uh, buckle up, grab your history books to, I don't know, prop up your iPhone so you can listen to the podcast and, uh, you're ready for a great episode of Planthropology with Natalie Sabin from Across the Ages. I, like I haven't studied history a lot, uh, like personally, but I'm a history nerd. And every time I hear about something like I, I, I tell everybody, I'm like, hey, this happened then. And some people are like, I really don't care. And I'm like, I don't care if you don't care. I'm telling you anyway. <laughs> so now that I've rambled enough, uh, Natalie, how are you this morning slash afternoon? I am really good. I've had my cup of tea, so I am ready to go. It's a nice warm day, a bit warm, actually, but it's OK. Um, yeah, I'm really, really good. And I'm excited to um, chat you through what we're going to talk about today, really, because I like talking, which is why I have a podcast. And I like hanging out with my Twitter. It's like a little, I call it my Twitter fam. It's the Twitter yeah. family. You know, I've gained so many friends, like particularly over the pandemic, when everyone's been like, hey, <laughs> there's nothing yeah. to do. I'll just sit on Twitter and social media. Um, and then you start to find that little bubble of like minded people you know, that are interested in the same things and generally have the same views. And, you know, it's nice to create that little, oh, there's other people who think like me and are interested in the stuff I'm interested in. So, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. And it's fun to 
like, you know, I think the way that we approach, and this is, has nothing to do with the show necessarily, but the way that we approach friendship in 2021, especially over the past two years, like you said, through the pandemic, is totally different, right? Like, it's so exciting just to, like, you know, this is the first time I think we've spoken quote unquote face to face, you know, across the computer. But yeah, like, I feel like we know each other pretty well <laughs> just from being internet friends already. And obviously, I listen to Panthropology as well. So like, when I heard your voice, I was like, I know that voice. I know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in, I, we're going to talk about your show um, here in a little bit. But I want to hear a little bit more about you first. So, you know, I think you are, uh, again, a ecologist a nature person and mm-hmm. um i think you have self-described i've seen on twitter as a plant person your family does a lot of plant stuff so mm-hmm. i just want to hear your story a little bit introduce yourself some more yeah so um i mean i actually retrained in 2017 i went to uni a while ago <laughs> 2011 i um graduated and i actually did computer science Oh, so okay. I I did information management and computing was my degree, which was basically glorified librarian. So it used to be called library sciences, but like the kids didn't think that was cool. So they like renamed it. And the whole reason I did that is because I like was good at IT at A-level. And every mm-hmm. in, in Britain, when you're good at a subject, you carry it on to the next level. And that's that's the end of it. You know, um, from, you know, year, year nine to the age of uh, 11, you carry on and then you carry on to sixth form, which is post 16. And then I thought that you had to carry that on to university. I didn't know anyone who had been to university. My family's never been to university. Um, so there was no one to say, hey, you can literally do whatever you want at uni. And then I went and carried something on. And then people are like, hey, I've done zoology at uni and I've done like um, marine science. And I was so jealous of that, that I missed that because if Mm -hmm. I would do it all again, I would go and do something to do with biology or whatever. Um, So I did project management for ages because I'm good at I'm good at organizing things, basically. And I got made redundant in 2017. And someone had said to me like one of my managers, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And this is before the redundancy. This is before any of that. And I went, I'd be in Florida saving manatees or something. That was like my answer straight away. And he was like, why don't you then? And I was like, what? I'm a project manager. This is my career now. I've done it for, you know, five, six years. This is it. You know, I'm stuck here. Then I got made redundant. Um, And I was like, okay, okay this is my time. This is what I'm going to do. And um, I was like, okay, maybe let's not move to the US. Maybe let's see if I can do something like that here. And (laughs) so I started um, volunteering one of the local wildlife trusts. Um, So there's 46, I think, across the UK that they're basically local county based. And I know all that because I used to work for them for a bit, Um, where uh, I volunteered doing their practical stuff like um, raking on my first day, raking off a wildflower meadow um, and doing all the practical stuff. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I got a job with them fundraising. Um, So those annoying people from charities that stand outside shopping centers and go, hey, (laughs) give us some money on a monthly basis. I did that for a year. Um, Mm -hmm. I got got an award, best new recruiter um, for just doing well, because I can talk to anybody basically. Um, Yeah. And then um, I did tree surgery for eight months. So I was a Got my chainsaw license, did tree surgery on the ground. So, um, you know, taking trees out of old ladies' back gardens who didn't want it shaded in their allotment, you know. 
And I was like, you know what, I've taken a bit of a turn off what I wanted to do, because what I'm doing now doesn't matter. You know, that's not, Hmm. you know, I don't care about this. I don't care that it's shading your allotment. I'm not passionate about this. And I would very often get distracted by birds. And, you know, the guy I worked for was like, Nat, come on what are you doing? I was like, there's a bird over here. And he's just like, I don't care. Please come and do this work, get all this stuff in the chipper. Um, And then I got a woodland traineeship at the local wildlife trust because I moved to Wales. Um, And then I was like, this is really cold. (laughs) So I was outside doing um, management for dormice. So they need quite a young understory dormice um mm-hmm. so we were taking down a lot of trees to thin the woodland out so that the younger saplings would come up and the the dormice would have something to wander through um repetitive i got bored <laughs> which yeah. is classic me um and then i started doing ecology because i good at report writing and stuff and i got a job a year and a half ago now just before the pandemic started um someone actually gave me a job so I was already doing sort of volunteer bat surveys and I really liked bats because they're so mysterious. So um, I had a bat detector before I even, when I was doing my old job, going out, going on bat walks by myself. <laughs> so um, yeah. it fit perfectly. And I've been doing that for a year and a half now and gained my bat license, which you need in the UK. You need um, in England, they're at different levels for what you can do. So I have a license to shine a torch. at them basically you can't even (laughs) if you know a bat somewhere in the uk you cannot look at it with a torch without a license like it's really strict really yeah that's fascinating i'm not even i'm not allowed to touch bats unless it's care or under training without the next level of license so i need to handle eight different species or something something like that someone would be like oh actually it's this many but whatever you know you have to handle x amount of different species in order to get your level two and then you go up to trapping is the next level so they are very very protected over here we love bats <laughs> yeah that's really cool i you know i never like so so my wife worked at a, a wildlife rehab center for a while or as a was an intern there for a while about a year um maybe not quite that long it doesn't matter um and and i know when she was there she was talking about how they needed different certifications to work with different animals, but it was like the bobcats or mm-hmm. the, you know, some of the larger um, uh, predators and, and, you know, do you have a rabies vaccine that X, Y, and Z. I had never really thought about that, that it's that stringent, you know, we, so this is an aside. I worked for um, our extension service for about four years. And so I did community education kind of stuff in horticulture. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a a woman call me one day and she said, where can I buy bats? And I said, like baseball bats or <laughs> she said, no, like the animal. I was like, I don't think you can buy bats. I don't think that's a thing. And she said, well, how do I get bats? I've got mosquitoes. I want them to eat, eat the mosquitoes. And I said, well, they will they will do that. And I said, you could put up a bat box and hope yeah. for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, Mexican free tail bats in, in oh. our area. Not, oh. <laughs> not, not so much. Like I see them very, very occasionally in the city or I hear them more than I see them. But if you go about, oh, an hour and a half like northeast of where I am, there's an old train tunnel and they have a a half million bat colony there and you can go see the emergence and all that. It's pretty cool. That's like the dream. All our bats are really small. Our biggest bat's probably about the size of a European blackbird. I don't know 
what the equivalent okay. in the US is, but sort of doing this hmm. this big. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, they're they're beautiful. I did see some big bats the other night, and it was just like, whoa, they're huge. Because normally they are literally mouse sized, just with big wings. Yeah. Um, so it was nice to see. You sort of have big bat is like a description of you know mm-hmm. myotis species, which are really hard to um, uh, differentiate in terms of sound and stuff like that. Um, and you just sort of go, that's a big bat. It's things like noctuals, different different species. Is like that's a big bat. We don't know which one, but it's big. One of the big boys. That's a big one. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. But uh, definitely not as so, big as Mexican free-tailed bats. <laughs> big for that's us. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's let's talk plants a little bit. How did mm-hmm. you get into plants? You said that that's something that your family has kind of always done. Yeah, it's like my other half's family. Um, so okay. my father-in-law is a landscape architect. He's had a landscape architect architect company for um you know years um and he like i think he won a competition for the festival of gardens in portugal a couple of years ago as well they go there it's like they love going there and they design like gardens and they have a theme every year um and he won one year which was really really cool um he's very much like you know the eco side of it and making sure it's sustainable materials and things like that and his dad was a gardener in like a big estate manor house you know one of these huge when they used to have loads of gardeners and your job could be a gardener because really at the minute for big estates and stuff like that you're looking at the national trust there's not really a huge amount of big you know estate families anymore really that have you know on-site gardeners and stuff so it was like the heyday um so my we have about 100 bonsai probably oh wow my, my other half and I it, I have two um so two, <laughs> two two or three of them are mine um and the others are all uh Rob's my other half so most of them are in training baskets so mm-hmm. they're not all you know old gnarly bonsai they're a lot of them are in training because they take they take ages you know um mm-hmm. to grow I find it funny that a lot of people think that you can buy bonsai seeds and I'm like, that's not a thing. I, I try and say to them, that's not a thing. And they've got a bonsai pot with like a green shoot coming out of it. And I was like, your grandkids are going to see a cool bonsai, you know, yeah, not, maybe. not you. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> um, so they're all in the garden. That's one thing I want to say. They are not indoor plants unless they are tropical plants. Please leave them outside, right. everybody. That's why they're dying. <laughs> so you always have, oh, yeah. I had one and it died. And I'm like, because it's like supposed to be outside it needs that rest over winter you're bringing it inside and it gets tired it lasts for a couple of years and then it's just like blam I give up because I've not had my little snooze over winter so I have to say to people leave it outside unless it's tropical like a ficus or something sure yeah yeah and that's such a good point though because the things that get sold as as bonsai I mean uh, it, it may be different in the UK but I see things like grow a giant sequoia you know a redwood and i'm oh, like uh, that. i'll meet you oh me <laughs> so, too I, I i had yeah i had bought seeds for um and they didn't they didn't make it we had an issue in the greenhouse but i'd had seeds for uh um bristlecone pine so uh mm-hmm. pinus uh, longeva and um the giant redwood um and you know they they got about an inch and i'm four centimeters tall and then they died because someone forgot to water for a while that's okay and that someone was 
This guy. Was it you? But, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. um, uh, they were like back in a weird corner of the greenhouse at, at work, so nobody would mess with them. Yeah. And that included me. I forgot to go mm-hmm. water them and stuff, and so they died. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of these species, they're like, oh, you're going to take a tree that's 100 meters tall and put it mm-hmm. in your kitchen? That doesn't... Yeah, like, I mean, we have work. some redwoods. <laughs> yeah. We've got some dawn redwoods. Um, I cool. did buy them from a garden center. They're in a clump of five in one pot. Um, but, you know, if you want them to get bigger, they will stay that size. If you want them to get yeah. bigger, you need to give them more space to grow. And that's what people don't realize. A lot of stuff we plant in the ground until it gets to a size that we want. Then oh. we reduce it down you know, bare root it and, you know, take some of the, the taproot out or whatever. It's a risk. It's always a risk and you will always lose sure. things, but that's why you have loads <laughs> so that it's yeah. not a big deal. My apple's looking very sad. My crab apple, we repotted oh. it and we think, we think it dried out. It's looking a bit sad, but we've got fingers crossed because it has tiny apples on it, like mini tiny little apples that, cool. that come off it, which is that's very so sweet. Cool. I could it looks do, cute I in could the autumn. I could do a whole episode on on bonsai, I think. Yes, we might bonsais are very nice. We also have lots of other plants, like I like roses, unless it doesn't smell. Who wants a rose that doesn't smell? Like I literally do not understand. But I like old style roses because new style roses don't let bees in. So right. I really want them to be useful to bees. So I like the old style with the single sort of petal around the side. Yeah. I don't know what style yeah. they are. I just liked the look of them and they smell good. So I was like, I'll have that. <laughs> Yeah, more the the wild type, you know. Uh, so, so and and we had we used to have a big um, rose garden at work, mm-hmm. actually two of them, um, and we had in one garden sixty seventy uh, varieties of heirloom rose, and um, and then probably a dozen in the other, and we had to pull them all out. We got a oh. disease called rose rosette, and it's a oh. virus that um, causes weird growth. Um, uh, you get something called witch's broom. I don't know if you've seen that, but all the branches kind of cluster up at the edge of, of twigs. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a tree person, so you may have said something you may have seen, but it, it rings uh, a bell. Um, but it looks like a, I mean, a broom, like the, mm-hmm. the stems do, and you get just weird growth, and it's spread by a mite. And so uh, we talked to it's it's a bad. It came into the Texas actually has a big rose industry, mm-hmm. and we grow lots of roses in the eastern part of the state. And mm-hmm. we, that is, that's uh, 400 miles from me and we're still in Texas. If that, I mean, that's a long ways. <laughs> um, so I say it's we so pretty l- loosely. Yeah. And, uh, but it came in there and then it's kind of spread all over the state and it's spreading all over the country and it's a virus. There's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And so we had to pull out close to a hundred old roses and it was very yeah. sad. We've got um, ash dieback in the uk okay we had dutch elm disease that was a beetle that was Mm -hmm. it's starting i mean it's basically taken out the vast majority of our elm trees um and now we've got uh ash dieback if you guys are in the uk and you're driving around just have a look at some of the ash trees you've got they've got keys on them and they've um you know long pointy leaves just have a look at the tops and you'll start to see just dead at the top so it starts at the top of the branches and works its way back and I can't it's it's very rare now that you'll find an ash tree without ash die back it's a fungus I think I think it goes on the wind mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the wildlife trusts have been managing it by dropping loads of the ash trees taking them down 
leaving them in situ um, and not spreading it. And it's a it's a big sort of problem here. So, you know, I mean, I guess it goes in cycles and stuff like that happens. But, you know, we'd like to keep some of our ashes. <laughs> Please. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So. No. And, and, you know, this is that that is interesting in talking about the and, and I, I sort of want to start getting into uh, your your podcast and what you know, well, what our topic is for today. So the history mm-hmm. of gardens, but, you know, thinking about the, how do I put this? I guess the changes in canopy in any given area, right? Mm-hmm. Like you say, it's a cycle. There are diseases that come in. And unfortunately, sometimes the more we manage, the worse that gets. I think mm-hmm. of um, uh, chestnut blight in the, in the U.S. where um, through sort of the, the Appalachian Trail, and that may not mean anything to you specifically, but uh, through through Georgia and parts of sort of the eastern, central eastern U.S., mm-hmm. um, it was like 75% chestnut canopy through there. And chestnut blight came in and wiped out, you know, most of the American chestnut. That's and, crazy. Um, and, and so through time, we see that, you know, canopy cover plant species or plant uh, uh, ecosystems and populations evolve and change based on predation and and all of these things. And I think that that has direct impacts on the societies that live in these areas. It changes mm-hmm. the way we interact with the environment and all of that, which I think kind of brings us into uh, your podcast across the ages, N- not specifically, but um, but you talk about history and you talk about um, our different civilizations and, and the ways that we have interacted with each other. And then today we're going to talk about how we interacted with plants. So yes. how did that start? Where did that come from? So, I mean, I tried to have a little look. I was looking like all the way back at like Neanderthal or Neanderthal. I'm not quite sure how you say it. I've heard people say both. So let's go for Neanderthal, I guess. doesn't really matter. People know what I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, it starts with food, Really, you know, when does something stop becoming uh, just I'm planting this because I need it for food and it means I don't have to go out and forage? Um, and when does it become, hey, I'm doing this because I enjoy, you know, being mm. near this plant and I enjoy having this shade and I enjoy, you know, the smell of this thing. Um, and I think it's quite hard to pin pin down that really I don't I I mean it's thousands and thousands of years BC really um but what I have done is sort of started at the Egyptians at ancient ancient Egypt which you know does span quite I think it's like 300 BCE um like all the way into uh just after sort of uh the the first centuries you know you know as in you know AD or CE or or whatever you want to call it um, I had quite a nice little quote. I couldn't actually, I've noted the quote down, but I didn't find who said the quote. So you'll have to, I did try and like retrospectively find like who said this because it's a really good quote, but I couldn't find it. But the quote is, there are two kinds of garden, the truly utilitarian one of fruit and vegetables meant to provide food for a family and the restful pleasure garden designed to nourish one's soul. So it's, I'm sh- they they do cross over massively mm-hmm. you know um but i kind of wanted to focus a bit more on the the one that's not purely food production um and one that is just 
you know, about, hey, I want to sit in this garden because this garden's really nice. So let's make a really nice outdoor space. So what does an Egyptian garden look like? But the, the, the primary function from what I've seen is that it's for shade. Shade. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Egypt's hot. <laughs> so yeah. shade for comfort and uh, water for irrigation. So the reason we know so much about Egyptian gardens is because they love a tomb. The Egyptians love a tomb. They love painting. <laughs> they love painting stuff on the frescoes on the walls of tombs. Um, and so that's what gives us the knowledge of what they looked like and the sort of being able to figure out what sort of plants they had. Um, so thank you, ancient Egyptians, for painting on yeah. walls. Um, so I don't know whether you've heard, have you heard of the Fertile Crescent? Yes. Yeah, so that's that sort of area like around the Nile, basically. And hang on, ah, oh, I don't want to say the other river's name because I always get it wrong. It's like the Euphrates or something. I can't uh, remember what it's uh, called. E- Euphrates, probably. Thank you. <laughs> See, I said it completely wrong. It's because I read a lot and don't, you know, say it out loud yeah. a lot. But basically, you know, the the argument is that that is the birth of civilization in that area. The reason is because those um, waters create a really fertile place to grow things in, which then means that people didn't have to work really hard to get their food production. That then means that they've got time to do more difficult things, more thinking and stuff like that. You know, they're not wasting time going out, hunting, gathering and all of that and really finding it tough to till the soil and stuff. It's just like, boom, here's some grain go and think about <laughs> go and think about stuff so um the nile yeah so the nile was kicking out fertile soil left right and center so you know they had time specifically to gardens they had time to go and do th- nice things like gardens you know because it wasn't such a drudge their life wasn't such a drudgery um yeah yeah they actually had time to do nice things and i'm you know let's be honest we're talking about rich people because you've yes you know uh, let's just say it now I'm talking about rich people like throughout this when I'm talking about gardens and stuff because just like everywhere you're you know the people on the lowest income in society are the ones that work the hardest which as is now um, and haven't got time to be doing things like gardens so I'm just saying that now it we're talking about rich people so yeah um so the Egyptian garden starts with a wall. It's an enclosed. Okay. They were enclosed gardens, wall gardens, which is like the dream. So A, it keeps the riffraff out. Don't want any right. of those poor people getting into our garden, do we now, Egyptians? <laughs> um, we also keeps the wild animals out because in Egypt, obviously, you've got stuff like, you know, hippos. You don't want a hippo coming in and smashing all your plants. That would be very sad and a lot of work yeah. for the poor gardener. Um, so yes, we start with a wall, um, and also the desert winds pretty cold at night, I should think. So, you know, it keeps the plants protected from, you know, sandstorms and all of that stuff. So there's also a pond. They love a pond. So it's a pond, a well, or a canal. So that's where the water comes from, from the, you know, the water source. Uh, because, you know, if there wasn't a canal that you'd managed to pump from the Nile to your garden, which they did do, which I'll, I'll go into on in a second, um, then you've got, you know, some poor sod dragging up water from the Nile every hour, probably, you know, it's yeah. so hot. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So they also had these things. I'm going to try and find it at ah, Shaduf. 
I'm sure I'm saying that correctly, um, where they use that to get water out of wells and ponds and stuff. So, okay, so think of like a jar, like an old style jar with a point on the bottom, um, you know, made of terracotta or whatever. That was on like a really long pole. And then mm-hmm. they just use the thing and dunk dunk it in and bring the pole up oh, so they're okay. not bending and stuff. So um, they still use them now, apparently, in Egypt um, to get water, which is really cool. Um, they had trees, flowers, vegetables. Um, do you think of like an Egyptian garden as being really formal and geometric? Huh. What do you reckon? I'm trying, uh, I, see, I would not think so. I would think it would be more, you know, because when when that pops into my head, I think of like from movies and stuff, like a little oasis along the Nile in the desert Mm -hmm. where you see like just trees and plants and animals and all those kinds of things. That's what pops into my head. Yeah, I always thought like geometric geometric gardens come from like 18th century England, you know, the rose gardens, blah, 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 blah. No, we're wrong. The Egyptians did much like the egyptians did everything um the egyptians created the geometric garden and they were very like linear and um geometric and symmetrical um you know and they liked rows of fig trees and Hmm. you know um things like that um so the most complete plan of a villa that we have access to and it surrounds so that was discovered in a tomb that belonged to a very important man which is why he had a tomb in the reign of Amin Hotep the third, so we're talking like between fourteen eleven and thirteen seventy five BCE. So okay, a while ago, a while ago. Yeah. So Good he, mm-hmm. as I said um, about the canal, like he had a mile long canal coming from the Nile that bought you know uh, water to his really fancy villa. Um, so. It's time to talk about plants, 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 because that's what we're here for. So we're talking trees for days. Trees. They love trees. And generally, they were fruit trees because they, why have a tree that doesn't produce fruit when you can have a tree that produces fruit? So what trees do you think you'll find in, in an Egyptian garden? Uh, Well, you mentioned figs, so I'm going to cheat on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. I'm trying to think what would grow in that area. Um, again, this is probably showing some of my uh, biases from modern agriculture, but I think things like um, olives and dates and mm-hmm. um, pomegranates, maybe, and yeah. um, uh, maybe some. Just thinking of the climate, maybe some other poems like apples and pears and those kinds of things. I don't know. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you are the plant guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're the pl- the plant prof. Um, so that's exactly right. So date palms, apparently there are two types of figs. I'm just like, I don't know. Sycamore figs and common figs. Uh, mm-hmm. Pomegranates. Uh, I've got apple. I presume pears. I've not written that anywhere. But if there's apples, there's pears, right? Um, right. Horseradish I've written, but horseradish is not a tree. Horseradish is like a little plant, but I've sort of got that yeah. under food production. Okay. Um, the pomegranate specifically, so... I, pomegranates do feature in so much um culture i suppose like through time but for egyptians mm-hmm. specifically they're said to symbolize death longevity paradise and temptation so in ancient mm. egypt egypt pomegranates were buried with the dead to aid their passage to the afterlife so you know a lot of these things had religious significance as well um no one seems to just have something just because they go, hey, I've got that because I like it. It's just like, hey, 
this has this significance and it's really deep and you know, oh, yeah. just like, hey, I just like pomegranate. I had a pomegranate for the first time the other day. I'd never had a pomegranate. Oh, really? Would you no, think? No, it was it was really nice. It pops and you, the, the little huh? seeds go, boop, which I was really nice. Yeah. And I, I text my friend. I was like, how do I get these damn seeds out? Like, I've just got no idea. <laughs> and I ended up just like clawing them out with my hands. She was like, there's yeah. a really easy way you can do this. I was like, oh, okay. So it, next it is time. a challenge. It is yeah. a challenge. So that's that's actually my wife's favorite fruit, and they're they're fairly easy to get here. We get them pretty commonly. Um, they grow actually fairly well in our climate. Mm-hmm. Um, our climate here, where I am, is actually not too different in some ways than the area of the world that you're talking about, Mediterranean. Um, you know, we're we're dry. It's hot. Uh, mm-hmm. Our winters are probably a little bit colder, but pomegranates are fairly cold tolerant. They grow in the mountains in Afghanistan and uh, they're native to that part of the world. And I don't know if you've ever read the book, the, the kite runner. Uh, It's a little depressing. It's good, but it's a little depressing. Um, But they talk about it. It's set in Afghanistan and they, they talk about like the kids throwing pomegranates at each other, which I think would hurt. That's a big, it would. They're solid. Yeah. Baseball size, aren't they? They're quite big. Yeah, they're big. Um, but no, that's, that's interesting. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's a good one. I'm, I'm a big fan of pomegranates. Yeah. Like I'll I'll be having them more since they're so important. So many cultures, I'll have them. Hey, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and talk lots more history. Well, hey, welcome to the mid roll. It's been a couple episodes since I've done one of these, but you know, this was a long episode and I thought, we could use a break right in the middle. Also, I remembered to do it. So there's that as well. How are y'all doing? Are y'all good? I hope you're good. So uh, not a whole lot to talk about today, except to remind you to go check out Planthropology in all the places. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as Planthropology or some related version of that. Type it in. It's Anthropology with a PL slapped on the front. And look for the Bristlecone Pine, and uh, that'll be me. I post a lot of stuff from plant tips and tricks, or as uh, some friends apparently like to say, you know, nightmare fuel. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I have fun. And uh, I can promise you won't be bored. So uh, go follow on social media and connect with all things Planthropology. Uh, also, uh, you can find me and whatever was left of my self-respect on the TikTok machine as at the plant prof. And I post other, you know, plant-related nonsense on there. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash planthropology. Uh, and there's no pressure at all to do that. But if you would like to help out, you are more than welcome to. Um... Gosh, what else? I don't know. There's probably other stuff I can talk about, but I just want to get back to this episode. This is a great episode, and uh, I want you to hear more of it. But before we do that, I have a trailer for you, a promo from my podcast network, or the podcast network I am part of, the Podfix Network. And hey, we're playing fantasy football. It's fun. It's Dungeons & Dragons for jocks i'm not a jock i'm a nerd but it's just a different kind of nerdy and i love it i love fantasy football so uh 
You need to listen to this show. Um, it is going out through Podfix Presents, which is the, the network show. And every week we'll be talking about how things went in the past week of Podfix Fantasy Football. And it's a lot of fun. It's silly. It's going to be ridiculous. I'm sure there'll be lots of smack talking, probably mostly from me. And so uh, that's something that you want to listen to. So let's listen to a quick trailer and then we will get back into talking about the history of gardens with Natalie Saban. All new to the Podfix Network, it's the Podfix Football Federation. Catch all the edge of your seat football action is fantasized about amongst eight shows on our network. Each week we'll look back at the results, talk to the teams, and prophesize the future like the all-knowing mediums we are. Follow along and root for your favorite squad by subscribing to Podfix Presents, the only place to listen to and then yell at your listening device about how we were wrong, even though you know we can't hear you. The Podfix Football Federation Weekly. It's a hole in one. Um, when Egyptians, I'm sort of moving on to flowers slightly. Um, when it, we talk about the Egyptian lotus, we are not talking about the Indian lotus sort of in that sort of what you would commonly think of a lotus. This is a different type of lotus. So it's really blue and white water lilies is what okay. we're talking about. So that's in Egyptian artwork quite a lot and in their gardens a lot. So those specific lilies are sacred to the goddess Isis and they're used in people's hair on banquet tables, carved into the tops of columns. Like they liked it, you know, and, and they say lotus, but they, you know, it's not lotus in the same, you know, vein as over in India. And I think China, I want to say, mm-hmm. I want to say China. I'm like, yeah, China as well. Um, so they really loved flowers for the sake of flowers as well. Um, so they did employ men, women and children as gardeners um, to keep the flowers looking nice. So not only did they look nice, they used them quite a lot. So the gardeners would also be responsible for making garlands for religious and social activities. Um, so beautiful. Be- oh, I want the flower of necklaces. So you're talking yeah, right. like yeah it's like why don't we wear more like flower garlands like please i want them um so these would have had corn flower false saffron i don't know what that is you can probably tell me what that looks like but i've never heard of that false saffron i'm there's some kind of crocus i guess um because there are (laughs) there's a there the saffron is a is a crocus flower it's a little cup shaped really pretty little flower, cute little flower. Mm-hmm. But then there's two or three other species of it that don't produce the little threads that people, mm. you know, spend far too much time pulling out and charging yeah. incredible amounts of money for. Oh, that's um, nice. So that, that's interesting. They're pretty flowers. Yeah. Well, there's, there's mallow and corn poppy. They've all been found in tombs. So I think um, I had something about Tutankhamun, which we all love. There we go. Yeah. Archaeologists found that Tutankhamun's innermost coffin had been decorated with a floral collar made from numerous flower petals sewn together. So, you know, obviously a really important pharaoh, you know, goes with that's how important, you know, flowers were to people. You know, he's being buried with them. Um, And uh, tomb paintings show offering of foodstuffs and garden produce as well. So vegetables, fruit. Like, did you do you guys have Harvest Festival in the in the US or is it just like a UK? Yeah. So it's just like, oh, here's a no, harvest festival. Yeah. Here's like loads of <laughs> vegetables and fruit. So they were taking those into the afterlife. And then they had garlands and crowns. Um, They're even like court florists. That was their job to be a florist, mm. to make sure that everything was adorned pretty with flowers. Um, And they were seen to honor the gods as well. Um, 
which is nice. Flowers are lovely. Do you want to hear an ancient Egyptian love poem? Yeah, got one. totally. It's, um, I am thy beloved. I am for thee like a garden, which I have planted with flowers and sweet smelling herbs. So, you know, that that's <laughs> that yeah. sort of, you know, God, you know, gardens are love, like, because they are just such beautiful things that people hold very, very dear. Um, yeah. I do think we're losing that slightly, but I'll I'll pick up on that a little bit later. Um, I've got some descriptions of a couple of gardens specifically. Um, okay. So a fifth dynasty tomb at Saqqara, which you're talking two and a half thousand BC. Um, so old, older than the last ones. Um, so they show the irrigation and cultivation of lettuce, which apparently was a sacred plant. So um, and an illustration of watering vegetable patches in the garden. Um, so very, I mean, that is that is thousands of years ago. Another tomb records um, that someone was granted land property 200 cubits long and 200 cubits wide, enclosed by a wall, equipped and planted with useful trees. A very large pond is to be made in it and fig trees and vines are to be planted, approximately equal to nine tennis courts. So, well, obviously, that's our modern, our modern, you know, yeah. gives us, you know, they, I, I don't think they had tennis. Maybe I'd assume not. Um, so basically, this was too large a space just to grow vegetables but too small a space to be growing loads of grain so that's sort of sort of explaining that you know definitely for pleasure and an egyptian tomb paintings in the 16th century bce are some of the earliest physical evidence of ornamental horticulture and landscape design so it shows lotus ponds surrounded by symmetrical rows of acacias and palms so very again with the with the lines. Do you want to hear something about Queen Hats Hapsus Shut? Yeah. <laughs> I yes. find this hard to say every time I say it, and I have pr- practiced, I promise. But Queen Hats. I have no idea how to say it. So I'm just Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um so fourteen seventy BCE. So she bought thirty one frankincense trees with their roots balled up in baskets from Somalia to decorate her table in Thebes, but they did not survive. So, you know, people have been importing plants like exotic plants, you know, I say with mm-hmm. like, you know, bunny ears, um, from thousands and thousands of miles away since the early ancient Egyptian times. Wow. You know, it's it's a rich person to say, hey, we don't have that here. Yeah, you, God knows how many, I presume, slaves, go and fetch these, you know, um, trees, frankincense trees, and I'll have them in my house. They died. Yeah. All the trees, that's... all the trees died. That's really sad um, for a lot of reasons. It is sad, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was just sort of nice that people obviously have that's an exotic tree from this place and it's from far away. And, you know, that's been happening for thousands of years by the looks of it for, you know, people to show off that they've got exotic things from different countries. So that yeah, that, that brings that, that brings well, an interesting point um, about the way that we look at antiquity, I think, and, and the peoples of those times, mm. I think there's an important point here that people are people and that we've been, quote unquote, that way mm-hmm. for yeah. our entire history. So we look mm-hmm. at some of the weird things that people do today and we're like, oh, that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, people are people. And I think when we look at ancient peoples and we, when we look at history and look at the historical context, we try to divorce our own um, 
like feelings and ambitions and things from that. And we can't do that. And I think it's that uh, for some reason for me, that sticks in my head as something yeah. that's very important when we think about this. Yeah. They're often seen as they are, they are different. You know, they are past and they lived a different life and they, you know, didn't have time to have the same cruxes and worries that we do. They, but they have the same, the root, you know, and, and yeah. wanting to show off and, you know, wanting things and wanting to be rich and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I always forget. And then I read something and I go, of course, she bloody had those trees. You know, of course, she <laughs> had them over from Somalia, you know, and um, wanted to show off. And of course, they died. And it was all a waste of money. But it didn't matter because she was rich. So it was fine. Right. Um, so yeah, that's a nice reminder. You know, I just move on to ancient Mesopotamia. Have I didn't realize this. Have you heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? I have actually. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm the only one that had never heard of this. So I was I was reading it. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is amazing. And I said to my other half, who generally doesn't, he just doesn't tend to know popular culture references and stuff. I'll always say, oh, this program or this singer. And he'll be like, who? And I was like, have you heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? He was like, yes. I was like, why is it just me that doesn't know like what these things are? I'm supposed to be this like history person and also like wildlife. Um, But uh, just for those people who haven't heard about them, I'm going to tell you about it. So I will start with a disclaimer. There is no evidence that this actually existed. Okay, so there's no documentation in the Babylonian sources that they ever existed. There's no solid archaeological evidence that they existed either. So I think they did because it's nice for me to think they did. Therefore, I right, think they same. did. Same. Um, I agree. Yeah. You know. <laughs> um, so this was King Nebuchadnezzar. Does that Nebuchadnezzar ring a bell for you? At it all? does. It does for me. Yeah. yeah. I was like, hey, I know that name. I know that name. Mm-hmm. So any, I guess, millennials and older who have uh, watched The Matrix, the ship from that Morpheus's ship is called the Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. So that is called the Nebuchadnezzar after Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, so this guy was said to have troubling dreams that he couldn't remember. So in Matrix Reloaded, which I think is, a, I want to say it's the second one. It could be the third one. Um, think, yeah, it's the second one. Yeah. Uh, Morpheus quotes the Bible um, when the Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed, when the ship's destroyed. Sorry for spoilers. It's worth a watch. Um, <laughs> I've dreamed a dream, but now that dream is gone from me. So the reason why that is um, relevant is that the story about Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian gardens is that he had them built for his wife, Amethyst. So she lived in Media. Um, I'm not sure where that was, but it wasn't it wasn't in Babylonia, um, who missed the lush landscape of her hometown. So, you know, she really missed the beautiful, lush landscape. And so he created these Babylonian hanging gardens. Um, So close your eyes, people, because this is how you're going to imagine it. So you've got multi-level terraces with plants hanging down. So think of like, you know, when you see like a post-apocalyptic film and the plants have overtaken the skyscraper. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that, but a bit more tiered into a sort of, you know, um, triangular-ish shape, I think. Um, and basically all of the terraces are just covered in trees um, and you've got little waterfalls and things like that. So it looks like from a distance that it's a mountain landscape hanging in midair. So it's the on the banks of the... 
Euphra- Euphrates. Euphrates? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's on the banks of the Euphrates River. Um, it was said to have been built around 600 BCE. So that's modern day Iraq as we know it now. Um, and they were described by Herodotus. So Herodotus was a, a Greek historian and he described it as one of the seven ancients of the modern world because it was just something that was unknown, this like incredible engineering feat with complex irrigation systems. So the terraces were supported by these like huge columns. The columns were filled with soil. So then that meant that the roots of the trees could then, you know, go down yeah. into columns rather than obviously be really shallow roots and, and fall over. Um, so the sort of trees that they had, they had larch, acacia, cypress, cedar, aspen, chestnut, birch, poplar, fruit trees. These aren't small trees. The fruit trees are probably quite small, but, you know, these aren't small trees. So yeah. the fact that they could keep these trees alive on, you know, not in the ground, essentially, I suppose, in in pots, but what you would, you know, describe as a pot, you know, a potted plant is mm-hmm. just incredible. Um, so there were loads of fountains. Um, and if if the gardens actually existed, it would take 8,200 gallons of water a day to keep the plants alive. Now, I'm not very good at this sort of thing, but that sounds like a lot. (laughs) A lot. That sounds like a lot lot of water. water. You know, we've not got electricity. You know, we've not got like really good pressured, you know, hoses and stuff. So, you know, Mm -hmm. this would have been insane. The gardens were about 75 feet high. So for the Brits, that's 22 meters high, large. They were they were large. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So the water would have had to be carried up or transported to the top of the gardens by irrigation system and then obviously made its way down. Um, a lot of historians, as I said, believe they don't exist, but they're wrong. Um, but they've been destroyed by contamination, a uh, combination of earthquakes, war and erosion. So apparently it's quite an earthquakey area. That is mm. that's a real word. An earthquake really? area. So yeah, so it's it's cool. I mean, the word hanging gardens really means overhanging. Like they mean overhanging yeah. rather than hanging because they're not hanging under stuff. They're like hanging over the terraces. Um, what I found really surprising was that when I started looking into the hanging gardens, everyone seems to know about it. You can get it on Minecraft. Like it's really? like a mod on Minecraft. Like there's a mod on Skyrim for the hanging gardens. There's a mod on like The Sims for it and i was just like where have i been like i'm a gamer as well and i've never seen or heard of the hanging gardens so that's 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 the hanging gardens they're very cool and if you there's a lot of illustrations out there which really helps visualize it but it just looks like a beautiful thing so i'd like to believe that it's real really so yeah i'm with (laughs) i'm with you on that i i uh I, you know, I, I always, when I learned it the first time, I don't, goodness, I, who knows when that was, probably in college, I took a history of landscape architecture course, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I slept through most of it. I was not a good <laughs> student. I've never been a good student. Um, but it was, that was one of the things we talked about a little bit. And, and in that context, it was presented as here is a real, you know, historical landscape thing. But yeah, um, yeah, no, since then, I have read, like you say, that yeah, maybe they existed, maybe they didn't. But I'm like you. I, I like to think they did. It's a good, it's a yeah. good, interesting story. It's nice story. to have something nice to think about history because obviously it is rife with the real, 
you get smacked by the realism of it really where you know a lot of stuff gets ruined because you're like oh hey well that was probably because of slave labor and it's like oh no no yeah <laughs> oh yeah. no that's sad um <laughs> a little <laughs> a little snippet on persians so trees became so important in persia that youths were taught to plant and cultivate them at the same time they learned to forge armor so yeah very important in ancient persia i've got um there's someone um, the Spartan general Lysander, who joined Cyrus as a mercenary. So there was a guy uh, who was called Cyrus the Younger, um, who was ruling Persia. Uh, we're talking 5th century BCE, so sort of 600, 600, 400. I always get them the way around. I don't know which way that goes. <laughs> yeah, I can't, because it's BCE, I'm like getting confused. But 5th century BCE, you can work it out yourself. So um, Cyrus and this Spartan general were, you know, conquering something or other um as usual um but a mercenary reported to um someone else how persian kings excelled in not only war but also in gardening creating <laughs> paradisios so paradises where they collected yeah. plants especially fruit bearing trees so everybody likes plants as i just keep <laughs> coming back to everybody likes plants got a little bit about roses you'd like to hear okay. about you know yeah, history would. about roses this sort of spans over quite a lot of cultures obviously so um wild roses were used in the production of rose water so rose water scented oils other fragrances long before they were cultivated um so many uses can be traced back to iraq so babylonia in 2000 bce um so deliberate of cultivation roses of roses was well underway in china by 500 bce and, you know, people like the Romans and other early European civilizations also grew them for commercial uses because who doesn't like a nice smelling rose? Um, the Romans, who are always extra, um, <laughs> filled their swimming pools, filled their swimming baths and fountains with rose water. They sat off carpets on rose rose petals for their feasts and orgies. Um so roses were also used as confetti for celebrations, for, for medicinal purposes and a source of perfume. Um, one Roman emperor used to enjoy showering his guests with rose petals, which tumbled down the ceiling, um, which is nice. Um, I did. <laughs> I have got a little snippet that likes, which actually goes back to what we said earlier about how all this nice stuff ends up being quite sad. Um, you know, and there were some people who ended up the poor people growing roses had to grow roses and not grow their own food you know, because they were forced oh. to, you know, to supply the demand, you know, in ancient Rome for roses and ended up, you know, not yeah. having enough food and stuff because they were growing roses. Yeah. So it says they became syn synonymous with the worst excesses of the Roman Empire when uh, the peasants were reduced to growing roses instead of food in order to satisfy the demands of, you know, hey, I've got a very important party. Do kids need food? <laughs> Don't need it. I need not roses. Important. So... Yeah, so wow. Okay. We've got the earliest actual depiction of a rose comes from 1450 BCE in Greece. So roses very very yeah. very popular. Yeah. They have been, so, yeah, they have been throughout time and they still are. You know, there's still a, a huge commercial like horticulture thing from cut roses to landscape roses and sort of everything in between. Yes, they're very popular. One I've got one last Roman to talk about Nero okay. quite a popular I think he's quite a well-known Roman emperor um so he's so. the the first century he was knocking about being evil and stuff um <laughs> so he had this massive palace called the golden house 
So it's it should be on like a modern day episode of Cribs. Like, you know, like I don't think Cribs <laughs> is going anymore. That probably shows my age. But like um, an episode of Cribs, like Nero's Golden House would like top every other thing like on there. Like so it wasn't just the house. It was a massive park, this huge, huge park. Um, so it had pavilions, baths, fountains. He had a huge artificial lake, which they'd go on boats on this massive lake. Um, and uh, so he had wild parties. I mean, Nero was one of Rome's most like notorious um, emperors. Like he literally set fire to an entire section of Rome so that he could build this house. Um, <laughs> he was a nice man. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a technical marvel, really. So it had domes, revolving ceilings, ornamental fountains. It had waterfalls coming down the walls. Um, There was a huge 30-meter-high bronze statue of himself um, there, um, and the gardens covered 125 acres. Wow. I think think that's quite a lot. Sounds a lot. It's quite a lot. Yeah. yeah, so where it was, a lot of you might have been to, like the Colosseum in Rome is on that spot. So the next emperor, Vesapian, Vesapes, Vespasian, that's a hard word, um, because Nero was so hated, the palace and the gardens weren't up long because when the next emperor came along, they were like, get a bulldozer to that flat and we're going to build the Colosseum. So the Colosseum was built in the first century AD and it's called the Colosseum. Oh, this is a nice little fact. So it actually acquired its name from that giant bronze statue that he'd commissioned of himself to resemble the Colossus at Rhodes, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world at the time. So that's why where the Colosseum wow. got its name from his like massive, like, you know, I'm great. Here's a statue of me. So that's yeah, fascinating. That's- I had no idea. That's really cool. Yeah, so the Colosseum's really cool. You should go and see you should go and see it if you can. It's very, very nice. I like it a lot. Um, it was weird to be there because it's just like you've seen it on a million pictures. So to go around was just like, oh my god. It was very, very is it good. so random question so that that is is it as big as it looks like on TV? Because you know, when they make it a, a lot of things are disappointing when you go and see yeah. them because you're like, this is a third of the size that I thought it was. Yeah, no, it is huge. I think the only thing that disappointed me was it was so busy. Um, We had a tour guide and she talked into a little microphone and then you had to hold like this little walkie talkie style thing, like up to your ear. And we couldn't really hear what she was saying. And uh, like in England and in the UK, there's, you go around a museum and you can go around by yourself. You don't need a tour guide because there's plaques everywhere in three or four different Mm. languages that tell you everything you need to know and are really detailed. They don't have that in the Coliseum. It was really oh. weird. Like I was just like, you cannot go on your own without a tour guide because there's just like, I didn't find any of these little boards that tells you everything. Hmm. But Pompeii was a fantastic tour, but you do have to go and see them both. Cool. Yeah, yeah I would really like cool. to. Yeah, uh, I would recommend it. It is nice. Um, just, just, you just try and avoid everyone trying to sell you everything on the street all the time. It's like any you know capital city. Everyone's like, do you want to buy this? Do you want to buy this? No, thank you. Bye. Um, so I got a bit on Japan and China. So um, both Chinese and Japanese gardens traditionally is to evoke the natural landscape of mountains and rivers. But what differs between China and Japan is Chinese gardens were intended to be viewed from within the garden, 
-hmm. whereas Japanese gardens are intended to be viewed from within the house. Interesting. Okay. Which I'd never thought of or, you know, it's just such a strange concept to, you know, you think that it's to be in the garden, but, you know, depending on what culture it is. So I found that really cool that um, they, they are similar. You sort of say an oriental garden, but, you know, they did have slightly differing, I'm sure they all merge, you know, uh, take tastes from each other. But it's yeah. like Chinese gardens included a water feature, but Japanese gardens set in a wetter climate would get by with the suggestion of water. So things like sand oh. or pebbles raked into a wave pattern, you know, that yeah. classic little rake and sand. And yeah, so I found that really interesting. So stepping stones um, in Japanese gardens, stepping stones are placed into groupings to be part of the landscape. But then in a Chinese garden, a particular choice stone might be placed on a pedestal in a prominent location. So it's like, hey, look at this really pretty stone. It's very nice. Everybody come and look at it, you know, rather than <laughs> stepping all over it. So only a little section on um, Japan and China. Uh, but I think everybody can kind of imagine what they look like quite easily, really. So I didn't want to go over that too much. Yeah. Got a l little section on Mesoamerica. Okay little small section so mesoamerican cultures you've got the mayans um and aztecs so obviously there are more cultures in that area but you know i'm going to focus on these two so they both had practical and aesthetic gardening traditions so the mayor had extensive use of forest gardens for food and medicinal plant production um and had these within their cities as well um the aztec elite built elaborate pleasure gardens in the valley of mexico so these are things like um, loads of different types of plants, as well as water features and aqueduct fed fountains. So the Aztecs were having, you know, aqua aqueduct fed stuff. Everyone loves Amazing. an aqueduct. Yeah. Um, so specifically for both of them, they had a strong focus on fertility. So like they were primarily agricultural or agriculturally focused. So as well as that, the Aztecs had a strong love of flowers. So they put a lot of religious and metaphorical um, significance on them. So there's a lot of parallels that you can see from, you know, a lot of cultures that wouldn't necessarily have known about the other ones. And it just goes to sort of show what flowers and plants invoke in people, which is yeah. just I was trying to put my finger on it when I was doing a lot of research and I was writing a lot of the notes up whilst I was sat in the garden. Mm -hmm. um because and we've got a little terrace where i sit on the in-laws terrace and we're sort of i've got roses on one side and then we've got um wisteria and clematis going up the side of the house and you know you've got bees buzzing around and stuff and i was really trying to put my finger on what it is about gardens that cause so much joy and i just couldn't i just couldn't quite go hey it's this one thing but then i'm sat there really relaxed so there's something yeah. about them well, really? it's like, you know, we, our, our species grew up, evolved in nature. You know, we, uh, throughout time, if you look at a lot of these, these ancient cultures, um, they had a very different um, take on, on, you know, and, and it's interesting to have this discussion because, you know, you look at some of the, the Mesopotamian cultures and they did take all these things and put them in walls and put them in their cities, but they were... You know, again, pe people are people and people have been people, but I feel like over time, and I think you you mentioned that you had some notes on this a little bit too, that we have gone from that, say, Japanese and Chinese style of, 
you go in the garden and it's like you're walking through the mountains and they're recreating mm-hmm. nature uh, in, in maybe a small scale or in a manageable scale. And we have gone to this place where we try to bend nature to our will in, in the landscape and in the garden. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what are your thoughts on that as a modern person that lives in whatever year this is? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, you know, gardening goes through God knows how many styles. I mean, me personally, I prefer a wilder, wilder mm-hmm. garden. I sort of, I stopped my research at the medieval period because you start for me to get a little bit, um, uh, polished a little bit too polished and a little bit like you know really shaped and really um boring for lack of a better term boring um you know my in-laws decorate uh that uh you know landscape in quite a wild manner and you know there's all sorts of and I put quote-unquote weeds you know everywhere and um I think that I think it is fashion and I will sort of touch back on this a little bit later about how we are moving into more of a relaxed, hey, I want to feel like I'm out in a wood or I want to feel like I'm not like we don't want really f- short lawns and stuff. It's more. You just want to feel like you're outside. And I think that's a huge thing that the pandemic has reminded mm-hmm. people, not everybody, because everybody, you know, some people already knew this, but the the we were locked down and we were only allowed to go for a 30 minute walk a day during like the the the, the worst like part of it unless you're an essential worker so health workers people who work in the building industry and stuff like that everybody else was made to stay home and you were only allowed to leave your house for food shopping and going out for 30 minute daily exercise so the you know we're lucky in that we live in a place called the Y Valley which is basically between England and Wales we're on the Welsh side um where we live in a beautiful place so it's I have you know a kilometer of woodland two minutes from the front door like I can see it now where I can just go for a walk um and we saw a huge increase of people coming for walks and going Hmm. past and we could see the riverbank on the other side and people going on the office dike path, which is a big, big um, old walking path that a lot of people, a lot of hikers do. Um, and I think people are just getting more in touch with how important wilder landscapes are and perhaps trying to mimic that in their gardens. Um, yeah. I don't want stagnant things and really short borders and um, really neat borders. Sorry, it's just... <laughs> just gross (laughs) it's just boring isn't it like i just like a bit more wild stuff so that's my view on it hey you do you people can do whatever they want and that's fine um but do give a little bit of less mowing a go and you know don't get so bothered about what the neighbors are thinking about how long your grass is it's your grass it's no one else's grass if you don't want to mow the grass don't mow the grass so when i took go on no, I was going to say, so I, I love that because I don't know if this is a phenomenon where you live, but we have something in the U.S. called the Homeowners Association, oh. which is is not a cult, <laughs> but, um, you know, like it, it's, you know, you, you sign up for the, and I'm lucky to not live in a neighborhood that has one, but it's like, you can plant this and this and you have to manage it this way or we're going to fine you. And it's, it's absurd. Oh, you know? yeah, that's, we, I, um have a neighbor who does not like how our garden is and it's such a weird house because 
they have to basically walk through our garden and past our front door to get to their house. Um, oh, interesting. So I was sat on the terrace once on like doing something and I just said, oh, hi, neighbor name, <laughs> insert generic neighbor name. I was like, oh, <laughs> hi. And I was just like, he said, oh, I didn't see you there. And I said, yeah, we grow these roses quite tall just to give us a little bit of privacy. And he said, oh, I remember when this used to be really neat here. And I was mm. like, oh, I was wow. like, um, because it's like, you know, it's like my in-laws, like suddenly you just think I'm just going to moan about my in-laws, like, you know, and he's always out with his strimmer and, you know, all the power tools to keep stuff really short and stuff. And it, he, he just looks at it and says, mess. Right. You know, this is a mess. For me, it's full of life. There's caterpillar pupae in here. There's uh, cockchafers and there's, there's everything. There's bees. It's absolutely buzzing. Like, yes, we didn't plant that. It's appeared from somewhere, but hey, the bees are on it. So it's fine, you know, but for a lot yeah. of people, that weed that's now got a really nice flower on, they wouldn't have waited until it got to that point where they can see it's got a flower. It would have been out straight away. So, you know, <laughs> boo, let people have yeah. wild gardens. I've seen people on Twitter post like passive aggressive notes that they've had from people saying, mentioning <laughs> that their garden's a mess and that they should tidy up and they're lazy. And it's just like, look. You do what you want with your house. I will do what I want with my house and we will carry on and we will wave at each other. <laughs> you, don't <laughs> when you, go talk, you don't have to be friends. Let's yeah. just be civil. <laughs> just wave. Yeah. I've got yeah. I've got a little section on medieval. That's sort of okay. as far as I went. Um, as I said, because I got bored. I mean, the main medieval gardens are for food production. Um, so uh, and they started in monasteries. So the kitchen gardens, infirmary gardens. So you've got things for herbs for the patients and stuff like that and healing things and um, vineyards. The monks love some wine. Um, yeah. <clears throat> it says that they also might have had a green court. So a plot of grass where trees and where horses could graze. Cellar, a cellar's garden so that that's the food. That's the food guy. The cellar is, is the, mm-hmm. the cellar is the food guy. Um, and private gardens um, for fancy folk that would stop by so you'd get you know kings and lords staying at monasteries so if you wanted to attract them and with them came money and donations then you would have to have a nice garden for them to come and stay in um but really lots of different plots raised beds with loads of food in really was the gist of medieval medieval gardens so and then also, the rich people had these huge deer parks for hunting. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you say parks, really, it's just a load of grassland, you know, with a, a, a bit of forest, you know, that they can, you know, run around and shoot various things with their bow and arrows. <laughs> but, yeah, that's that was the, the – I'm sure there's so much more about medieval gardens. I just – lost interest really i hear you yeah <laughs> so i was just like hey this isn't exotic this isn't exciting this isn't different i know this so it's just like oh whatever yeah i wanted to highlight a little bit about religion and gardens um which is something i came across because i was reading half of the stuff i sort of got from a book two or three different books that my my father-in-law gave me because he has a million books on gardens and garden <laughs> design and i was like hey do you have any like history of gardens design he was like here's five um so these big huge thick books from probably like you know like the 90s or whatever all on all on things which was really nice it gave me a nice little you know hey here's the order um so in christianity and judaism you've got the garden of eden Mm -hmm. um so obviously uh adam and eve 
in this very beautiful garden. Um, in Islam, heaven and paradise is a garden. So when they talk about going to paradise after death, it's a garden. It's a garden. Like, um, huh. you know, yeah. So the, the day of ju- judgment will take place in the garden of pleasure. Um, so, you know, the idea of paradise for Christianity, Judaism, Islam are all a garden, whatever garden it is, whoever, you know, whether it's Eden or whatever, it's a garden. Um, you've got sacred groves. Um, so in ancient India, Greece, Rome, China and Japan, um, they had sacred groves that, you know, could not be chopped down. Sacred trees are important in Celtic, Germanic Europe, and they're still important in India. So trees holding this, you know, sacred power um, and actually still, you know, yeah, in Hindu worship, still important in India. You've got Buddhism. So Buddhism has a significant influence on garden design. You've got the Zen gardens of China and Japan. Um Back to uh, Christianity, um, Mary gardens are common in churches and institutions. <clears throat> I have made an error and I've not, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I've not written down <laughs> what that is. But um, this, this was the fact. This is the fact. Um, the word paradise comes from the Persian word paradezaz, which means walled garden, walled garden. <laughs> so the actual word paradise that we say heaven is paradise or whatever it comes from walled garden which is just just it's just really cool that is really cool yeah so the actual idea the notion of paradise as a garden so it predates islam judaism christianity um it actually stems from the sumerian periods in 4000 bce in mesopotamia so I do, I just loved that little thing. Like I'm I'm not religious in any way, but I well, I do like the philosophy of Buddhism. I'm trying to get into that at the moment. Um yeah. but I just found that really like what it's one of those facts that's like, oh my goodness, you know, that's heaven really cool. equals garden is the yeah. gist of it, you know, the ultimate thing that everybody wants is this paradise, and that paradise is a garden. That's super cool. So, that is very cool. Yeah, it's um, cool. Wow, that's so like all of that was so fascinating. I, I yeah, my, my and it's just like all the religions just are just cool. like we all like gardens; they're really wonderful. So you know, having the birds above and hearing a trickling of water, and you know, just that calm and joy that gardens bring to people is just so important. And um, yeah, so that nicely takes me on to a little bit of like modern day thing, like the ecologist in me, like wants to say please let's throw plastic lawns in the bin (laughs) i don't know what it's the case is in the us um but in the uk we are having an absolute takeover of artificial lawns and it causes me a small amount of rage um (laughs) they have like they're just bad in every way they're bad in like pollution microplastics they're bad in terms of biodiversity obviously it offers nothing to wildlife at all not even shelter for a spider for goodness sake um they can get really hot so that's something that we've learned this summer is that a lot of people with dogs i know get things like that you know oh it's because they're making a mess and blah 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 blah. well they burn their feet Mm -hmm. on the you know on the artificial grass i saw some I was in a garden center the other day and I saw artificial lawn freshener and it was like a lavender spray 
that you were supposed oh to spray God. all over your artificial lawn. And it's just like, come on, friends. Like, <laughs> you know what will stop the lawn from smelling? Having a lawn. Yeah, like grass. Crazy. Or I know, but come on. And if you use it a lot, it does stay down. You know, and I just think, oh, you know, come on, please. And there is, you know, petitions and stuff in the UK to get it banned. I think it did get to um, Parliament to debate. Um, and they, I think they just threw it out. They weren't really bothered. Um, but yeah. I see a lot of vans and stuff with artificial grass, you know, take the hassle out of your garden. And a lot of that is the pressure. A lot of that is the pressure from people to keep your lawn mowed. And if people can't be bothered to mow the lawn, they go, oh, well, okay, well, I'll just get this artificial grass then. But wildlife is struggling so much now. They need they need grass. Grass is so good for shelter and, you know, oh, oh I really like grass. And I've yeah. got, you know, a wildflower sort of section that I planted. Um, I'm going to give it a mow now, actually, because it's this sort of time where everything's gone over and the seeds have gone, so it needs a mow down. Um, But yeah, it just makes me sad. And if you are considering artificial grass, please give it a second thought because it ends up being more of a hassle than having a lawn. And it doesn't look as good and it's bad for the environment and it's bad for biodiversity, which is really struggling right now. And if nothing else, it's really expensive. It is very expensive. Yeah, yeah, it's it's sad, and and don't, just don't weed as much. I managed to convince one of my very good friends. She was out twice a week in the summer mowing her lawn, and I was just like, "Hey, what do you <laughs> think about like having some wildflowers?" And she really got on board and got a big wildflower mix, and you know, spread it all and stuff. And she, I think she's she's managed it for a year, and she said, you know, it was really nice. There's loads of bees everywhere, and. You know, she was itching. She said, I am finding it really tough. I'm seeing it long and I just want to get out there with the lawnmower. I just want to mow it down, but I'm not because she said I'm not allowed. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, she's now sort of with compromise now. And she's like, right, OK, well, I am going to go back to mowing, but I'm going to have a wildlife section over this end that I'm going to leave long. And I'm going to, you know, so it just yeah. takes a little bit of, hey, you can have this. It takes a little bit of time, but you you can have this. So. Yeah, let's you'll, hope you'll, that people don't keep being really lazy. Yeah, you'll like this. We get we get a lot of blowing sand here where I live. We um are not in the desert, but we are like a desert adjacent sort of. It's uh, right. yeah. we're sem- we're semi-arid, but we get these big windstorms that blows tons of sand and dust and all of that into into where we live. Um think of like, you know, have you seen you've seen the mummy with Brendan Fraser, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Big oh, of course storm. I have. Of yeah, course I have. Right, yeah. right. We get those here. We get those big haboob, wow. crazy w- dust storms sometimes. Mm-hmm. So everything gets a layer of sand deposited on it, including the artificial lawn. So I have actually literally seen someone pulling weeds out of their fake grass because they <laughs> sand up and then weed seeds blow in and they're pulling, yeah. you know, Palmer Amaranth or whatever else out. And I'm like, we've maybe we've maybe gone wrong somewhere. There there's been a mistake made. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And and a lot of things are convenient and people have busy lives and they're pulled hundreds of different ways and they just want an outside space that they can use. And it's just like, okay, but there are other things that aren't as bad. You know, if you think the sun's going to bleach it as well, you know, you leave something in a windowsill mm-hmm. for, I mean, it must be worse in Texas, but you know, you leave something in a windowsill for a couple of months and the back of it is bleached. So, you okay. know, what's it going to, what's it going to look like for your lawn soon with your lavender your fake lavender spray all over it, you know, and um, 
you're burning your feet when you go out yeah Yeah, so um maybe try paving stones try paving stones at least because even though that's not beneficial to wildlife it's still not polluting the atmosphere with plastic you know which the artificial lawns are doing i understand that not everyone has time Gravel. Yeah, and it lets water through, and and it it still benefits the soil and benefits the landscape yeah. in some way. And there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of benefits. I, I'm I'm with you. Like, not everyone likes lawns, and it's a big debate. You know, again on Twitter, people get really angry about stuff, like really mad mm-hmm. about stuff. So yeah. so if if you ever want to like, you know, if you ever need some drama in your life, just go look at lawn Twitter, and it's a whole thing. <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I'm I'm a big advocate of real plants. You know, put real plants yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully we're just about to move next week. So we're about we've we've lived our life in pots. We have well, we've got all those bonsai, but we've also got a lot of potted plants that we've taken from here, there, and everywhere because we've we've not had our own place yet. So I don't want to plant my plants anywhere because I want to take them with me when I move. So hopefully we've now bought this house um, back in England, and it's an old cottage garden. It's an old sort of. Um, old 19th century so sort of early 1800s house cottage and it's got a very well established garden it's got like maple trees and it's it's really beautiful and I'm looking forward to releasing my poor plants that are just sort of like please let me out of this pot and I'm like I want to but I've got nowhere to put you so it'll be nice when we move to finally start getting my hands into a bit of proper gardening and um got my father-in-law to help with that because I just like things because they're pretty. I don't really pay attention to when stuff's coming out because obviously you want things to be flowering at different stages over the year all the time so that, you know, you've always got a point of interest is the the buzzword that I've I've learned. Um, so yeah. I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in and getting one of those little knee pads, you know, like yeah. the little things yeah, yeah. that you kneel on. <laughs> getting one of those and, um, you know, being out in the garden with a big sun hat. That's something that I'm really looking forward to. So I'm going to rewild quite a lot of it. So um, have a little bit of lawn, but then turning, making different spaces, making different areas, different seating areas that look completely different when you're over there and completely different when you're over there and getting a wildlife pond and stuff. So that's really very cool. much look forward to it. Um, real quick, before we start wrapping up, tell us about Across the Ages. I want to uh, make sure that my, my listeners hear about your podcast and uh, yeah. go check it out. Uh, so Across the Ages is a history podcast um, that I run, obviously, and um, I pick one topic. So I was a bit, I was going to do a wildlife podcast, but I was just like, hey, there's already so many good wildlife podcasts. I'm sure there's obviously lots of history ones as well, but I already get that fix in work and stuff. So I'll do mm-hmm. a, I'll do a history one. Um, so I wanted a bit of an angle and I thought, hey, what if I cover one thing across time? So like we have today, we've picked gardens and we've talked about gardens across different cultures and across time and done it, you know, in a linear context. So uh, my first episode was on shoes. My last episode was on weapons. So I definitely do not cover everything in every episode on that topic. I pick and choose things that are interesting and Mm -hmm. talk about them. So I've done contraception. I've done um, lady pirates. I've done pirates. I've done uh, female pirates. Uh, uh, Bonnie pirate lasses is what it's called. I couldn't remember what the episode was called. Um, I've done one on tor- uh, on. Um, there's one on torture coming up. I've not done it yet, but I will because I did one on executions and it grossed people yeah. out quite a bit. So I thought, hey, I'll give you a little break. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a little break. So I've done hats, hats. 
Um, sometimes they're quite frivolous topics that I just feel a bit more frivolous and want to do something like hats and cover crazy hats. And then other times it's, you know, something a bit more serious. So it's fun. They're normally under half an hour because I cannot speak slowly. So <laughs> I do just smash through like the thing and, and they're all under half an hour. So from 50 okay. minutes to half an hour. And um, they're a nice little snippet if you have to drive to the shop um, to listen to. And uh, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, I love I like it. Them. I, uh, I, I binged it uh, over a weekend one time and I think I listened to like 10 episodes or something. <laughs> and um but I, it's it's a brilliant podcast. It's it's so good. It's so much fun. You have just the Thanks. best personality, and uh, it really comes through in that show. And I, I really love it. So I would recommend that to to anyone. Thank you. So my Twitter is at underscore across the ages. I've got a Facebook page as well. It's not as active, but I do post the new uh, episodes on there, which is across the across the ages pod. Um, and I I tend to do it once every two weeks. I had a big break. I've just come back from just chilling over the summer and just wanting to be outside instead of researching all the time they take quite a lot of research so you know any reviews and stuff I really do appreciate because they do take quite a lot of time um but people enjoy them and I enjoy them so as long as that stays that way I'll keep going for sure so the last thing that I want to ask you and it's something I ask all my guests um if you had a piece of advice for our listeners and that could be about gardens it could just be about life in general really whatever it could be, you know, don't have fake grass. I don't care. Uh, what what would that what would that one thing you want people to take with them be? Uh, the one big thing that I try and say to everybody is, don't let other people affect how you behave. So, just uh, without being so cliche, be yourself. Like, don't don't be like, oh, I can't do that. We're in public. Do that. Do we want sing, sing in the supermarket, dance in the supermarket? I dance in the supermarket if a banger comes on, like the tannoy, <laughs> I'm off dancing down like the cheese aisle, you know, like, but who cares? You're never going to see these people again. You know, that's what I try and remember, like, who cares? And, you know, if they're not having joy in their lives, you should have joy in your life and don't let anyone else dim your shine. I love that's it. That's my bit of advice. I love that so much great yeah um so you mentioned across the ages where else can we find you is there are there other places you want to be found uh i have a you know a nature-based my main uh twitter account which is at nat sabin um where i will i talk about bats and mostly i talk about bats <laughs> mostly i talk about bats but general nature stuff and you know it's my personal account as well so i just talk a load of rubbish on there as well so i really like interacting with people i won't ignore you if you want to chat to me um so those are the two accounts that i run so yeah, but that's that's it really. They don't can't really find me anywhere else. If you Google me, I'll come up. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's much time scary. I spend on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. No, I'm I'm there yeah. too. Well, Natalie, I, I I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that. That was so much fun. Me so too. Much fun. I had a lot of fun. And uh, uh, thank you so much for being on. And and we may have to have you back sometime to talk bonsai more because I could talk Absolutely. about that for a long time. We could have a whole uh, episode definitely. Yeah. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, Definitely go check out Across the Ages. And uh, y'all keep being cool. And we'll talk soon. That was great, wasn't it? You enjoyed that. I know you did. Uh, And and isn't Natalie's advice just so good of don't let anyone tell you who to be? Just be you. 
just just do what you want to do be happy dance in the grocery store uh be like me and uh when you're riding in the car with your significant other sing a different song than is on the radio that may not always be the best for your health but it is fun y'all thanks so much for listening um i do this because of you and i do this to tell stories and uh to tell about so many cool people that are out there and uh thank you for listening thank you for supporting this show thank you for supporting my wonderful guests it means the world to me again look up planthropology all the places on social media and thanks finally to the texas tech department of plant and soil science without whose support i i could not do this i couldn't do this show so um y'all keep being cool keep being kind be safe uh be smart and i will talk to you in two weeks You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.